Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. So this is episode two of season three of Bolus. And this week we have Donald McClornan talking to us about myelofibrosis. So we basically talked to him about how it's diagnosed, what treatment looks like, what the marrow looks like for these patients and how it impacts the spleen. I suppose transplantation in these patients is difficult because of the host, quite hostile environment, the bone marrow. Mm. And he explained that quite nicely. What yeah, like the effect of the fibrosis on the bone marrow and how even after you successfully get rid of the myofibrosis with a transplant, it can take up to a year before it's starting to look more normal. Yeah, and yeah. patients require um, blood and platelets a lot longer after transplant than they would with another disease um, because of that. And that's quite normal in these patients. And following on from this episode, we'll have John Lambert in a later episode in the series talking about uh, other diseases which fall under the myeloproliferative neoplasms category. Donald, thanks for joining us. We're going to talk about myelofibrosis and transplant, and we've just recorded a fantastic 15 minutes or 10 minutes and then realized the record button wasn't on. So um, thank you very much. For that. Yeah, thank you very much for... <laughs> Uh, allowing us to record again. Um, oh, so we'll be able to breeze through this, won't we? Yeah. So, so our I, first question I, would well, be... Well, it was, it was with a, a slight statement from me, I, I think, and it said um, the name myelofibrosis. So we're looking at myelo meaning bone marrow, fibrosis meaning scar tissue. And the way I looked at that was thinking of um, cystic fibrosis as, you know, sure. trying to connect that, not in any sense of the 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 sense that it's anything relately remote to each other um, and just in the sense of the scar tissue and how that works so if you can if you can again talk <laughs> us through um myelofibrosis the definition and, and how that sure so the, the myelofibrosis is a chronic myeloproliferative neoplasm they used to be called disorders then they were reclassified in 2008 Eight. <laughs> perfect <laughs> 2008 the world health organization as a neoplasm so these are all chronic malignancies it's a rare disorder in the UK. Its incidence is probably in the range of one in 100,000. And we can divide it into primary myelofibrosis and secondary myelofibrosis when the disorder has arisen from a uh, preceding disorder such as polycythemia vera, when it's too many red blood cells or essential thrombocythemia, which is too many platelets. So it can present in a really heterogeneous way and often patients present to other specialities before they make their route to haematology. So for the individual patient, if we think about the patient first rather than the blood testing and diagnosis, the patient may be noticing non-specific symptoms like many of the disorders we treat in haematology. They may notice fatigue. That can be something that's mild through to very severe, limiting their, their quality of life. They may have symptoms of anemia. They may have recurrent infections. They may describe abdominal pain if they have bulky splenomegaly that they may notice on stooping or bending or during exercise or turning over in bed. They can have drenching night sweats that need them to change their bed clothes, change their pyjamas and fevers, uh, bone pain. So these are all sort of symptoms, as we all know, that can present with other blood disorders. Um, and some patients may have all of them and some patients may only have a few. The disease is often sent to us in haematology. It's mainly outpatient-based management from other specialities that have started to investigate these disorders or in the more advanced stages if they present to A&E with a problem or they saw another medic or nurse has picked up that they have an enlarged spleen 
and want to think about the reasons why. Mm -hmm. So going back to the bone marrow itself, what does the scarring look like? I know you mentioned before, <laughs> it causes a lot of thickness. Um, sure. So in terms of the word scarring and the bone marrow, it's just to try and get that connection of what that looks like. Yeah, and that's, that's often a question that we get asked by the patients in clinic, is we talk about fibrosis, and they may never, we've heard about that, but they may never have heard about the word, and it's, it's hard for them to think about a picture of the bone marrow. So the way I often describe it to them at the early stages is a bit like mesh wire, like chicken mesh wire that's deposited, which is very fine deposits of fibrous tissue within the bone marrow. And at the very start, your bone marrow can compensate. It kind of overcomes the effect. But as more inflammation happens within the bone marrow, the amount of the scarring tissue increases. The fibrils of the scars join together, so it becomes much thicker, and that's known as collagen. And then eventually the bone marrow starts to struggle, and that's when we start to see changes in the blood count and often the spleen starts to enlarge as it starts to compensate for a failing bone marrow. And that's when the symptoms would start? Yes, yeah, so often that correlates with the symptoms. They've tried to correlate the amount of fibrosis in the bone marrow with symptoms, and there's no direct correlation because the reasons the patients are having symptoms is the bone marrow is very pro-inflammatory, so a lot of inflammatory molecules are made by the abnormal cells in the bone marrow that circulate in the blood. And it's actually that inflammation that drives the symptoms such as sweats, fatigue, some of them come out of itching. And in the end stages of the disease, the bone marrow is struggling so much that the blood counts completely fall. Mm. Um, on presentation as well, because um, the bone marrow is struggling, but it's also can be highly active as well. So it can be low or high counts. Exactly. On, on so, it. it's, um, it, so sometimes in the early, more in the early stages, you can have a high platelet count a normal blood count or a high white cell count. So there can be really high, a high degree of variability in the blood counts that you'll find with malofibrosis patients. Would that be, makes it diffi more difficult to diagnose? Yeah, it means that you have to think um, carefully about why the patient may have these symptoms. Because actually, in some cases, I've we've talked about low counts, we've talked about high counts. They can also have normal blood counts as well. So that's why we look at the blood under the microscope and it can characteristically give us specific features that suggest that there may be scar tissue in the bone marrow. So the red blood cells can look funny. They can look like teardrops because they've been squeezed by the scar tissue as they try to pass into the bloodstream. We see blast cells, so early cells, moving into the bloodstream and we see red blood cells that still have a nucleus, which they, you shouldn't see circulating in the blood because the bone marrow is under stress. And that's a sign so it's of... it's pushed out early. Completely. It hasn't completed because its... Yeah. It hasn't completed its normal cycle. And um, it's quite a hostile environment in the bone marrow for these cells. So the bone marrow just shoves them into the peripheral blood. And we start to see those when we examine the blood smears. Right. And you, you mentioned some of the uh, symptoms that patients might present with and they can have similarities maybe to something like lymphoma so I mean does that make it more difficult to diagnose that patient? It, it all depends I think uh, it's a good question it all depends on the patient reporting the symptoms because often they can be quite stoical and they can just ignore the fatigue and they can ignore yeah. the sweats and the itching just like lymphoma they can mm -hmm. ignore the symptoms in the early stages. It also comes down to the medical and nursing teams that are looking after the patient maybe in another speciality understanding that why is the spleen enlarged or why is the patient having the symptoms 
because they need to be directly then referred to us for investigation. And some of the symptoms we've described, as you can, as we all know, completely mimic those of a lymphoma, some of the leukemias. So you need to put the patient features together with the blood abnormalities, the blood smear findings, and then that directs your bone marrow testing and imaging of the spleen and things like that. And why is the spleen enlarging in, in, in these And what patients? does the spleen normally do? Because we know that we can live without it. So yeah, yeah. we so, haven't really ever asked about the spleen. So spleen is a number of different functions. And yes, there are many people who can live without spleen. So they're asplenic after car accidents or if it's been removed for other reasons. In brief, before we're born, that's where we make blood cells. And then the bone marrow function takes over after birth. So the spleen itself is very hospitable to stem cells moving from elsewhere into the spleen. It's a nice environment for it to make blood cells. And in health, your spleen normally in a female is up to around 12 centimetres in length. In a male is up to about 13 centimetres in length. It hides below your, your left costal margin, below the left side of the ribs. And it plays a big role in immunity, so helping to fight bacteria and also destroying blood cells at the end of their lifespan. So a red blood cell circulates for about 120 days. And at the end of it, the spleen can eat up the red blood cells, take out of action white blood cells, platelets. So it plays not only a role in the hematology side of things, but also in immunity. Okay. So the spleen's still functioning if it enlarges with myelofibrosis, but it becomes much more stressed if there's more infiltrating cells moving yeah. from elsewhere. Yeah. yeah, and I guess like the scarring, I mean, how does that, how does this sort of scarring come about? Because I can't quite sort of picture that just yet. So these are all what we call acquired stem cell disorders. It's, it's exceedingly rare to have a familial tendency to have these disorders. There are about nine families in the UK when it runs in the family. Right. So these are all acquired mutations that happen by chance. And we have a number of different mutations that we do routinely in the lab and also on myeloid gene panels that we see reported back. But the three most common mutations that happen in the stem cell is JAK2, J-A-K-2, um, which is a normally an enzyme uh, base that sits on top of the stem cell and signals molecules that tells the stem cell to proliferate or to slow down. It acquires a mutation called V617F, which is a bit like if you think about a light switch. Instead of it switching on and off, depending on what's happening within the body, it's constantly switched to on. So that's where the proliferation comes from. Mm. And there are other mutations called calreticulin or MIPL that happen in about 20% and 5% respectively. And they indirectly signal through the JAK. And all of those mutations upregulate the activity of the stem cell. So the way I often explain it to the patients, it's a bit like having your foot on the accelerator in the car and just keeping it going. And even if you're pressing the brake, the accelerator isn't slowing down. So they're making too many red blood cells or, or platelets or white cells. The problem is these these disorders are inflammatory. And because of this inflammation, that drives the fibrosis within the bone marrow. Your body recognizes that something's wrong and eventually to compensate it, stem cells from the bone marrow move to the spleen where they start to try to compensate and make red blood cells, white cells, platelets. And then eventually the spleen progressively enlarges. Mm -hmm. And do you need to have all three mutations to have a diagnosis of that, or could you just have one? Um, so it's or the, none? You can have none, exactly. So about 80% you'll have one of those three. Uh, it, is really rare, it's, it is really rare to have more than one of that those blood, three. Yeah, yeah. More than one. Um, 
they're called driver mutations, but about 20% of people, we can't find the driver mutation. So what mutation is driving the disorder? There has to be something, but we just haven't found it right. as yet. They're called triple negative because they lack those three mutations. And that's a bad prognostic sign. So if someone says this patient has triple negative myelofibrosis, they have a much more aggressive disease course and a much higher risk of transforming to a leukemia. Okay, so it can also transform into leukemia. Yeah, so lifelong, once someone has established with a diagnosis of myelofibrosis, their overall risk of a leukemia is around 7 to 9%. And you mentioned some of the other uh, myeloproliferative disorders like essential thrombocythemia and polycythemia vera, and those can then also cause myelofibrosis. And it's that happened often, or is that... Yes, common. so there are again chronic myeloproliferative disorders and it happens probably in about 10 to 15 percent of each of those disorders over the duration of the disease that they will develop what's called a secondary myelofibrosis and to make things as usual in haematology longer names we call it post-essential thrombocythemia myelofibrosis or post-polycythemia vera myelofibrosis. Yep. And would that be harder to treat then because uh they've already got pre-existing blood disorders. Normally, we used to classify them the same, and then more recently we have divided how we prognosticate on the both disorders, and we'll talk about that. But at the minute, it doesn't mean, if you have post-PV myelofibrosis, you can behave in a very similar fashion to primary myelofibrosis. So they don't tend to have a worse prognosis per se. Is there any risk factors to it, to getting yeah, so we I mean, age, I guess, is with age, most. But like, like everything, so yeah. most common, and so I have patients in who are 16 or 17, right up to in their 90s. Yeah. But the, the common ages, like most blood conditions, are sixth, seventh, eighth decades and above. There, apart from, there's no occupational social risk factor for acquiring these mutations. So they did large studies looking to see if there's any particular risk factors. It does seem if you have any autoimmune disease in your history. So that can be autoimmune thyroid disease, joint diseases. You do have a higher risk longer term of developing a myeloproliferative neoplasm. So whether that's due to, most likely that's due to the immune system being dysregulated, because we know the immune system normally keeps these sort of mutations in check. Mm -hmm. So if you have an aberrant immune signal or you've had treatment for an autoimmune disease that affects your immune system, it may lower your predisposition to developing them. But that's, ex that's quite rare for us to find that in someone's history. Mm. But the reverse is also true that once you've been diagnosed with any of these conditions, your rate then thereafter of getting an autoimmune disease is higher. So it's common for them to have thyroid disease. It's common for them to have rheumatoid arthritis. So there's definitely a connection between an abnormal immune system, not keeping these mutations in check and developing the disease. Is this any hematological sort of condition? So or, I, I haven't actually heard of that before. Sometimes they've done similar studies with some lymphomas, okay. but trying to prove a link between mm. autoimmune disease and blood cancers is quite hard. But if you look at these epidemiological studies for MPN, there definitely is a link and when we've there's a, a study in the UK called Mosaic that's looking at occupations and family histories and that signal starting to come through in that study as well they've looked at occupations and there's no real signals but the things they picked up in the UK were hairdressing mm -hmm. um, so really of farming mm. so really unusual things mm. but nothing that gives us a definite reason like most blood cancers why they why they happen yeah exactly yeah so how do we how do we treat myofibrosis then 
with myelofibrosis, fibrosis, you can have many patients who don't need any treatment at the start. It all depends on their symptom burden. And we objectively assess their symptoms using a very simple iPad or form that's handed out in outpatients. It's called MPN10. And it uh, scores 10 MPN-related symptoms, such as fatigue, concentration, weight loss, loss of appetite. Um, from zero up till 10, they get a, an objective score at the end. And that allows us to see how it's interfering with their quality of life. And then also the benefits of some of the treatments we may do. So, We've talked about the symptoms already, how they present, but sometimes even one symptom like drenching sweats every day can be significant enough that you want to intervene yeah. with that patient. Yeah. Um, so the way I think about treatment for the MAF patient is assessing their symptoms, and then secondly assessing, are they having problems with their spleen? So is the spleen causing them discomfort? Um, do we need to think about ways of reducing the spleen? And then, we also have to be aware that these patients, irrespective of lower high blood counts, have a higher risk of both thrombosis and bleeding. So we look at occupation, we look at things like, um, have they had a prior thrombosis before? Are they smokers? Are they diabetic? Are they hypertensive? And we manage those quite aggressively to reduce their cardiovascular risk. And then in myelofibrosis, the treatments, which there are many, um, are directed towards the symptoms or the degree of splenomegaly. Right. Okay. It's often symptom-orientated goals at the yeah. start because no matter, we'll talk about some of the licensed drugs, of which there's only one in the UK, but the only curative procedure for myelofibrosis is stem cell transplant. But as we've talked about, most of these patients present in their 70s or 80s, so they're not potential transplant candidates at that stage. And then in 2009, there started to be clinical trials of a JAK inhibitor called ruxolitinib, which is made by uh, Novartis. And it was used in two large phase three clinical trials when they compared it either against placebo in one of them or compared it to drugs like hydroxycarbamide interferon, so non-specific ways of controlling the blood count. And the endpoints of the trial were to control symptoms, so they used the scoring system, and to look at the degree of reduction in spleen size. And both trials had over almost 300 patients in each showed that ruxolitinib was beneficial both as regards symptom control and also reduction in spleen size, which led to it being the only licensed product in EU and US for malofibrosis. And still it remains the only licensed product. So if you don't have the JAK2 mutation, that won't benefit you? So it's interesting, and we still get asked that question a lot, it will benefit you. So when they looked in the study, the JAK2 mutated patients versus the non-JAK2 mutated patients did exactly the same. And the reason being is that whether it's cal reticulin or MIPL or another mutation we don't know about, they all signal through JAK. Right. So this JAK, Signaling is upregulated in every malofibrosis patients, whether they're low risk, high risk, intermediate risk. And how the JAK inhibitor works is it blocks the energy supply to the kinase, to the enzyme, slowing down the inflammation and the signaling that's happening in the bone marrow. So it doesn't matter if you're JAK2 mutated or not, you'll still, if you, if you are someone who will respond, you'll respond to the drug. And the overall response rates up front to ruxolitinib are about 70%. And is that given as an outpatient then? Are they able to? And is that an injection or a tablets? Sub, tab, tablets, tablets, right? Okay. Twice a day, 
uh, tablets. Um, the median dose is about 20 milligrams twice a day, different strengths of tablets. We normally start about 10 milligrams twice a day and build up over a couple of months. And you can have patients who completely, their symptoms disappear, their spleen completely normalizes because you're down-regulating all the inflammation we talked about, through to some patients that their spleen will be exactly the same, but their symptoms go, or the reverse, the spleen settles down, but the symptoms are still there. So you can get quite heterogeneous responses to the drug. And we would normally give patients a period on the drug of three months before we would say, yes, they're responding or no, they're feeling the drug. But if you have a responding patient, they'll often tell you they feel much better within the space of a week to 10 days. Wow. Oh. And what's the sort of duration of effect you can expect to see? Is it something that can wane over time or? Completely. We have some patients who were in the original trial who are now 10 years out, still on the drug, doing well. Uh, we have some patients who lose their response within a year. So globally, the median response to ruxolitinib is uh, about three and three quarter years. Yeah. Um, and then they either lose the response completely or they start to gradually get a recurrence of symptoms. So we have lots of trials in looking at that field of what to do when they lose their response to ruxolitinib, should you transplant them or should you give them another medical therapy? And there are other JAK inhibitors, some of which have just been licensed in the US, that are looking at treating patients who failed ruxolitinib. And so, I mean, transplantation, we're talking about allogeneic. It sounds like quite a difficult environment in terms of the bone marrow with all the damage that's potentially already done to sort of transplant someone. Is, are there extra things to consider when teaming yeah, someone up for a transplant? Completely. So these are patients who, it depends, it's a wide range of age, but are often older than some of the other patients we perform allogeneic transplant on. And because of that, they may have other, a higher degree of comorbidity, so maybe other medical problems that make their work up towards transplant more difficult. But they are a very specific group of people to bring through transplant. And you, for those of us looking after them, either as an inpatient or an outpatient, they often struggle much more with an allogeneic procedure than other disorders we transplant, such as MDS or lymphoma. So there are a number of reasons for that. The reasons are they have often bulky splenomegaly, so a big spleen. So their transfusion requirements are often higher. A lot of these patients are transfusion dependent and have iron overload prior to transplant and just like you summarized it's a hostile environment in the bone marrow and the risk of graft rejection historically was higher with malofibrosis because of all the inflammation and scar tissue there was a higher risk of not accepting the graft and even if you get engraftment they can often stay transfusion dependent for three to five months after transplant so they have poor graft function so you're seeing full chimerism from mm -hmm. the donor but their graft function remains poor and eventually it will increase. They struggle more because their time to engraftment is longer than we would see with other disorders such as MDS. And they have a specific profile post-transplant in that they've got higher rates of graft-versus-host disease, both acute and chronic. And that reason is because of all the inflammatory molecules we've talked about. If that's all there in the background, a lot of those molecules are the ones that we see that drive the donor lymphocytes to cause graft-versus-host disease, so rates are higher. And also they're at a higher risk of veno-occlusive disease because often the liver can be enlarged as well. And because of the splenomegaly, there's portal hypertension in the portal vein. So the rates of veno-occlusive disease are higher than you'd expect with other types of myeloid allograft. So in 2019, those we should transplant 
are based on their prognostic scoring systems. So up front and during the disease course, we use a number of different factors to prognosticate how the malofibrosis may behave. We know that with, like with most blood cancers, those who are older do worse. So over 65, you score in this scoring system. If you're anemic, so less than 100, you score a white cell count greater than 25. If you have constitutional symptoms, so weight loss, poor appetite, sweats, or if you have these blast cells, so early cells in your blood that are greater than 1%, those are the five factors we look at up front. During the disease course, if you become transfusion dependent, so needing two red blood cell units every two weeks, or which many of them do, or you become thrombocytopenic, so less than 100, or you have a bad chromosomal karyotype, so a complex karyotype, or monosomy 5, monosomy 7, there are all additional risk factors for doing worse. So that allows us to classify patients into four groups, low risk, intermediate 1, intermediate 2, and high risk. And we currently consider transplant for patients who are fit for an allograft, with all the things we often think about who's fit, uh, who are up to the age of 70 in general, um, with intermediate 2 or high risk disease, who have a good donor. Because again, the I kind of thought you were going to say the opposite, actually. I thought you, were, to an extent, I thought you were going to say the people who are less affected by the disease, actually, that makes it easier to do the transplant, but it's... You wouldn't put you them would, for that high risk, would you, right. if they weren't on a higher risk? You would actually yeah. wait until, so you might actually, someone might be a candidate and you could transplant them, but you'd actually wait for the you'd disease wait. to progress. Yeah, and it seems right. a bit of a, it's the biggest thing that our patients stumble with, because... If they feel well, we'll do it now. And exactly. It's like, right, but the, yeah. the high risk of mortality with an allogeneic transplant anyway is, sure. is not, I guess, exactly. worth the risk until you have to, is it? And the reason they, we picked the intermediate two and high risk to transplant is that if you look at all the scoring systems, the estimated survival is less than five years. So the balance then switches to putting them through the transplant. Whereas with low risk disease, sometimes up front I can tell a patient your estimated survival is greater than 20 years with either no or medical therapy and you base that on their mutational profile at the start. Mm -hmm. So we get lots of them who are in between, so intermediate one, so just before they transition, who say, well, I've got a sibling, either a sister or a brother who's a good match. They're in their 60s, they're currently well, they may not be well forever, mm -hmm. why don't we do yeah, the transplant? Okay, right. hmm. But no matter how good we get at doing transplant for malofibrosis, there's still uh, at least a 20% transplant-related mortality within the first 12 months, mainly due to GVHD or infection, like most transplants. But we still haven't got away from that. And as we've talked about, we've touched upon, these are difficult transplants with the higher rates of GVHD, uh, veno-occlusive disease, graft rejection. So we wait at present, we still wait to intermediate two and high risk. Yeah. The but also for when you say that they need, you know, they would need blood and platelets for, for weeks longer. after, yeah, 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 exactly. which you would automatically think, well, you know, it's not working then, is it, if they're still needing. But if, if we know that from the start, that's always good to exactly. reinforce, yeah. you know, to the team and, and to the patients as well. But, yeah, this you know, poor graph this function, and they just published on it, like looking at the across EBMT, is still about 30% are still needing blood products by six months. Wow, okay, yeah. Their chimerism's so good. That is different, isn't it? Um, and they often need higher doses of um, stem cells. But would they yep. need higher doses of immunosuppressants? Exactly. Is that, why it last, or is that, is that no, aiding no. The, the last longer of the needing blood? No, it's, it's much harder to wean. So different than we do with leukemia and MDS mm. and try to get them off cyclosporum by three months. Yeah. They Often my patients with AMF are still on a bit of cyclosporum by month four to month six because of the rate. So you try and bring them down 
there's still a residual inflammation, the GVHD rears its head again. So they're harder to wean off cyclosporin. Are you actually hoping for like the immune effect of the incoming lymphocytes? So, okay. Exactly. So there's a defined graft versus myelofibrosis effect. Right, okay. But again, the fibrosis within the bone marrow, when you look at post-transplant bone marrows, the fibrosis will still be there. Hmm. Um, you've taken away the abnormal stem cells and the inflammatory causing megakaryocytes, but the fibrosis will only remodel over about 12 months. Right. So it's only by a year post-transplant that you will start to see some normal architecture of the bone marrow, because I still get sent referrals that, oh, the fibrosis is still there six months after the bone marrow. And the bone marrow is great, like every other organ, it can regenerate itself, but it will take up to 12 months or so afterwards. As we know, with the way we condition our patients now for leukemia and MDS, you can get similar results with a fully matched or nine out of 10 unrelated donor, um, albeit the GVHD rates are higher. But when you look across even more recent malofibrosis studies globally, nine out of 10 donors, their survival is much worse than a sibling or fully matched uh, 12 out of 12, 10 out of 10. So donor choice comes into it a lot when we think about this. And that's mainly because of non-relapse mortality, so uh, infection or graft-versus-host disease. Mm -hmm. And we don't fully understand, outwit the normal things we see, why the 9 out of 10s do so much worse than the 10 out of 10s, because they're conditioned in the same way. Yeah. And haplos, do they come in, or like, or would you so, go for the 9 out of 10 over a haplo? So we still use the normal hierarchy, uh, we're mm. picking, picking a donor. Um, and in all the haplo trials in the early days, they excluded myelofibrosis because we know that the rates of graft rejection with haplo were, were higher and there were more GVHDs and non-relapse mortality. So they excluded AMF. But across EBMT, we published on 85 haplos and they're giving similar survival as 10 out of 10 unrelated donors. But their GVHD and non-relapse mortality rates are still high. At EBMT last year, the Italians published on haplos showing one-year survival rates in excess of 80% using post-transplant cyclophosphamide. So I think the biggest question for us dealing with myelofibrosis, and we may see it reflected in our patients coming onto the ward, is if I have somebody who's fit for transplant, but they only have a 9 out of 10 donor, but I'm already starting to see data that suggests a haplo does better, should we then pick the haplo instead of the 9 out of 10? And just quickly, so why is it that the stem cells in this disorder hide out in the spleen and not so much in other disorders? Yeah, that's a really, and I think the answer is we don't fully know why. Most likely it's a combination of all of these inflammatory molecules called cytokines and chemokines in the bone marrow make it hostile for them to do their job. And secondly, the fibrosis has a physical effect within the bone marrow of taking up the normal marrow-making right, space. Yeah. Hence, they have to move somewhere else. But the, if you look, when they label them, there is a big egress, so moving out of the bone marrow, and they go to the spleen where they lodge within the splenic tissue, and then that takes over. It's a nice environment for them to be. And the spleen's like a sponge. It just gets bigger and bigger. And bigger and you know you can have patients who may be transplanted where the spleen is 35 40 centimeters so much bigger than the normal 13 wow. or 14 centimeters so that's something that you'll only start to see coming down over about six to nine months after transplant so just because the patient still has palpable spleen after transplant doesn't mean the transplant hasn't worked right. this spleen will resolve in parallel with the fibrosis resolving mm -hmm.
Yeah, good. Right. Great. Thank, Thank you so, you so much. much. Thank you. Sorry, it went over. That's completely fine. It would have gone over. It would have been perfect.